You're listening to KSUA Radio 91.5 FM Fairbanks. My name is Kevin. And my name is Dylan. And we are back with another episode of Speaking of Anthropology. Uh, so, Kevin, what do we what do we have on the docket for today? Yeah. Uh, well, first off, we always do like a kind of a, a weather check because, um, you know, it's a beautiful day here in Fairbanks. Um, and we have a guest on our show who's also here in Fairbanks, um, Dr. Uh, Brian Hemphill. Dr. Hemphill, how's the weather uh, here in Fairbanks today? It's a typical winter day here in Fairbanks. I think it snowed about four or five inches and I went out and snowblowed this morning. The best part of living in Fairbanks, I guess. <laughs> um, how is it down in Washington, Dylan? Uh, it's cloudy. It's not um, quite raining, I don't think. I think it, it's doing a little bit of maybe a, those vague drizzles. Uh, but yeah, no snow. Although... I did hear supposedly February is the month that it snows here in Southern Washington um, near the Pacific coast. So maybe I'll get to see snow, which would be nice. And I, I'm sure absurd to uh, everyone in Fairbanks listening to that, but I really do miss the snow. So a new change of scenery indeed. Um, well, we want to welcome everyone to another episode of speaking of anthropology here on KSUA 91.5 FM Fairbanks. A show that comes to you every live Saturday from 1 to 2 p.m. And, and today we have very graciously invited Dr. Brian Hemphill, um, one of our professors, uh, one of our faculty members in the anthropology department. Um, and, you know, a, a wonderful. Uh, I'm currently taking a course with you, Dr. Hemphill. So um, it's, you know, I, I love that we're just taking this beyond the course now and here into a live show um, and here today to just chat with you a little bit about anthropology. So, Dr. Hemphill, if you don't mind uh, introducing yourself briefly to our listeners. All right. Well, I'm, I'm Brian Hemphill. I've been a professor now for 28 years. I started at Minnesota State in 1992. I then went to Vanderbilt University for six years, spent 13 years at California State University. And this is my... This is my seventh year here at UAF. So, first of all, that is uh, quite a uh, impressive resume. But uh, one of the things, uh, just one of the general questions that we like to ask folks um, to start out is, uh, what made you interested in anthropology uh, way back at the beginning of your career, Dr. Hemphill? Well, that's a very easy one for me. I, I had a grandmother who had a very formidable presence in my life. And my grandmother was an escapee from East Germany. That's what we called it back then. And so much so that the name of her little town was changed to Karl Marx Stadt. So mm -hmm. we lost all contact with that side of the family behind the Iron Curtain. When she came to the United States, she got very fascinated with Native American culture and worked at the Thomas Gilcrease Museum for a while in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And then when I was about 12, she opened up her own Indian museum in outside of Portland, Oregon in Tualatin, when Tualatin only had about 800 people. And so while other kids went out 
to daycare, or not daycare, I should say summer camp and things like that, I worked in my grandmother's Indian Museum. And in that role, I got to meet lots and lots of Native Americans that came in because it served as a kind of kind of a way station and clearinghouse to help mitigate the many problems that Native Americans have with poverty and drug abuse and alcoholism today. And I had the great pleasure of meeting two of the grandsons of Sitting Bull. And my grandmother would put on these salmon bakes where you would get all these salmon and you'd bury them in the ground and you, they would roast over these hot coals for hours and hours and there would be dancing going on. And that was, you know, something I did that nobody else I knew in my middle school or high school ever did. And I'll never forget one time they had the big powwow in Portland. And there were Native Americans from all over the country that came to dance. It was a competitive dance and they had big circle dances with women and they had big circle dances with men. And I remember I stand with my grandpa and my grandma and there were these three guys and they were like six foot 12. They were huge. And they were all dressed in silver and black like the old Oakland Raiders, you know. And they were the best dancers. I mean, they were phenomenal, but nobody would dance with them. And I remember asking my grandma, I said, Grandma, I don't understand. These guys, these guys are fantastic. Why doesn't anybody dance with them? And she looked at me and she got this really sad look in her eyes. She said, Brian, you gotta understand, they're crows. And I went, what? <laughs> what do you mean they're crows? And she says, they're Crow Indians, and they served as scouts for the U.S. Cavalry in the 1870s, and the other Indians have never forgiven them. That made anthropology very real for me. <laughs> and that's, that's where it comes from. That also being an Eagle Scout, I loved going out camping. Growing up in Western Oregon was a fabulous place to be a Boy Scout, and I'm sorry that they have kind of a bad reputation these days. But it was great for me. My dad didn't want to do any of that kind of stuff, you know. But all these guys that were out there from WW2, they would go out and sit and drink whiskey and let the boys go camping and tie knots. It's great, great childhood. Yeah. So then, quite the uh, quite the introduction to anthropology from a yeah from an early age. I, uh, your grandmother being from um from Chemnitz uh when I was studying in Berlin actually um one of my instructors uh she was a middle-aged woman but she had been born back when it was still Karl Marxstadt as well so yeah it's uh, a <laughs> interesting legacy with that but uh so I'm curious then from this early introduction right into anthropology um how you then uh, got a little more into the uh, biological anthropology side of things? Well, you know, I went to uh, Portland State University as an undergrad. And that was kind of a lonely experience because it was a big, big commuter school. I would meet other anthropology students and, and then they'd go away and I'd go away and I worked my way through undergrad as a grocery clerk. And... Uh, None of my professors did any field work at all. 
you know, they did their dissertation and then they kind of retired. And so the most influential professors I had as an undergraduate were Wayne Suttles, who was an expert on the Pacific Northwest potlatching. And then I had a history professor that was very much into colonial Latin American history. So I applied to Indiana University in Bloomington and uh, I was so stupid. I said that I didn't want a financial aid because I didn't think they'd want me if I was demanding money. And I had like a 375 GPA, I was such an idiot, but I got accepted. I went out to Bloomington. I was gonna study uh, under Emilio Moran, who was a, a cultural ecologist. And we just didn't click, didn't click. And so I ended up going back to Oregon and I was gonna study the encomienda system of Latin America. And so I started out as a cultural anthropologist and uh, I went to two quarters because we were on the quarter system rather than semesters. And then in the spring quarter of my first year, I took human osteology. And I don't know what it was, it just, everything clicked. The professor didn't really wanna teach the class, he just used it for grant writing time. And I don't know, I saw it and it just went right in my head. And I, I went, man, this is what I wanna do. This is what I wanna do. And the rest is history, as they say, that was 1983 and <laughs> I'm still guilty. And it's been, what, 38 years later. Yeah, I, you know, if I can jump in, I think it's it's very interesting, Dr. Hemphill, you, you mentioned your progression and, and you know, uh, the challenges that, uh, you know, undergrads or younger students will face um, in finding, you know, a good ma faculty mentor or in finding the project that just clicks um, and that just becomes your livelihood, um, you know, and, and into a whole study in a career. Um, you know, I think a lot about, you know, the current stages that of this our, our colleagues and, and both Dylan and I, the points of where we are at, um, and we're still trying to figure out very much where we're going to end up. Um, you know, Dr. Hamphill, we also like cultural anthropology, but, you know, by any means, we may go into biological, linguistic or archaeology and or some applied anthropology. Um, and so it's it's, it's very it's very um, inspiring to hear that thought, at least um, of what, you know, you know, the step by step process is. Um, but, you know, maybe we can ask more of a, um, a current time question, Dr. Hemphill. But um, here at UAF, uh, what sort of uh, research projects are you doing in course? courses are you teaching? Well, first of all, I when I came to UIF, I established the Center for South Asian Dental Research. And I, over the course of the last 15 years, I've collected the dental impressions of some 15,000 living people that are members of various caste groups and various non-Hindu caste tribal populations that are found in South Asia. And I've been focusing particularly in Northern Pakistan and in Northeast India. And I focused on those two areas because my overriding question is when do we find the first contacts between East and West Eurasia that later became what we call the Great Silk Road? And the handy thing about teeth is, is that teeth are present in skeletons, so you can look at them in ancient sites. 
And they're the only hard tissue of the body that's directly accessible in the living. So it gives us a chance to collect large, statistically robust samples among the living and have a diachronic perspective by comparing them with people of the past. So that's just one of the hats that I wear at UAF. I also serve as a consultant for the Fairbanks police and for the Alaska State Troopers in forensic cases when people stumble onto skeletonized remains. You know, first question is, is it human? Second question is, if it's human, is it a modern individual or is it an Indian from the prehistoric era? Because that will let them know whether they need to open up a potential homicide case. And so that's the second hat that I wear. A third hat I wear is that uh, I'm very much involved in curriculum development at UAF. I'm been the chair of the College of Liberal Arts Curriculum Council for, seems like forever, <laughs> but it's been like four years. And I'm also on the university-wide curriculum committee. And right now, you know, with budget cuts and COVID, we're having to rethink how to offer a meaningful cross-disciplinary curriculum with fewer faculty and students in remote locations. And that's a, that's a challenge. So that's what I do. As far as what I teach, I'm pretty constrained because as you well know, the number of students in the anthropology program is small and even smaller for biological anthropology. And so I end up teaching a fair amount of I guess you could call them service classes that aren't directly biological. I teach native peoples of North America. I teach senior seminar, which is a four sub discipline survey. Um, I have taught the anthropology of death. Um, but, uh, you know, it's really tough because I'm, I'm really trained in the natural sciences but anthropology is considered a social and behavioral science. And so when they're looking to include anthropology classes in general education, my classes don't fit. I mean, how can you argue that skeletal anatomy is a social science? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a, an interesting topic, Dr. Hanvelli, that you mentioned, you know, that um, and we had this conversation with um, other faculty as well here on the show. Um, you know, Dr. Ruther, uh, a few weeks ago, we had him in and he, he studies geology and then also is an anthropologist. And I think it's the same, you know, when you, Dr. Hempel, you're a biologist, but also an anthropologist. Um, so I guess, you know, this is one of the questions in, uh, that, you know, we, I think a lot of students are having a difficulty understanding is, you know, how do we... You know, what, which is the, I mean, they both are sciences. One's more of a social science versus a, um, you know, a natural science, right? Um, but then how do you then take both and then justify and value both of them um, as a biological anthropologist? Yeah, you know, actually, I, I call it this kind of Sturm und Drang of American education <laughs> because there's this, this stress and tension going on. You know, in one sense, the way that we have divided up intellectual inquiry in American academia is good because anthropology is a discipline that does include archaeology and it does include biological 
anthropology, and you don't see that in Europe. In Europe, I would be in the anatomical sciences, and Dr. Ruther would be in material sciences. So that's a that's a definite plus. On the other hand, the difficulty is is that students then are programmed to self-identify as a natural scientist, a behavioral scientist, a humanities practitioner, and maybe they're a little bit of both or all three. You know, I certainly am. And I wish we could somehow break down those silos a bit. Uh, and I, they've become especially, especially insular at West Ridge because I get people in biology that want to take my courses, but they can't because there's no flexibility in their degree programs. You have to have all these prerequisites. And so it's, you might have one or two free classes in four years. That's it. Yeah, to, to our listeners who um, who are listening, uh, Dr. Hempel just mentioned the West Ridge, right? So that's upper campus. Um, and then we have lower campus, um, you know, that kind of uh, the balance in the between of who's who and factionalism in that sense. Um, you know, I, I often hear some of my colleagues here at UAF talk about, you know, how it's almost as if we're like uh, houses of Harry Potter. <laughs> Essentially, you know, we all do our own studies. We all have our own expertise and we're all different. But, um, you know, the more that I've studied anthropology, at least I've realized it's, you know, it's so interdisciplinary. Um, and, you know, just what you were mentioning, Dr. Hempel, with the various hats that you wear, you know, we all have different backgrounds and all have different interests. And yet we all are in the same department studying everything, <laughs> which is really tremendous, I think. Um, you know, and I know Dylan, being a graduate from here at UAF is likewise experienced that, I, I feel right, Dylan. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and I'll say too, I feel like in my time at UAF, one of the things that I got to see was that um, anthropologists in the anthropology department at UAF, they certainly seem very interested in um, interdisciplinary work and in, in working with all kinds of folks. And uh, I just, it, it, it strikes me as maybe, um, you know, anthropologists in some ways are, are reaching out and trying and, and um, you know, maybe that is not necessarily re fully reciprocated by every other field, unfortunately, not to try and to cast shade or anything, but it just, it certainly seems to me that um, anthropologists, at least at UAF are, um, many of them are very interested, you know, whether that be, as we've previously discussed with archaeologists who are willing to work with, um, you know, uh, across various disciplines, whether that be geology or even, you know, hydrology and oceanography and stuff, or, you know, with biological anthropologists and, and cultural anthropologists and folks who are just, you know, willing to, to, to talk with other fields and engage with other researchers. And I do think that it is a, um, something that, uh, an endeavor that is definitely worth, uh, pursuing and continuing to work on, even if it is, uh, runs into difficulties, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, that's as it goes, I guess. But uh, we do have, on a lighter note, uh, some music recommendations from you, Dr. Hemphill. Uh, so uh, I was wondering if you might not just um, mention briefly uh, sort of what kind of music you gave us uh, to be playing on our breaks uh, for this episode of Speaking of Anthropology. Sure. 
most of what I told you is called Kavali. And Kavali is a very old style Pakistani music that draws very heavily from the Sufi tradition. And if you are at all familiar with Islam, you know that Sufis were a kind of mystics. They served as dervishes. And when you watch Bollywood movies, most of the songs come from Pakistan and they have a Muslim origin that ultimately goes into Sufism. Fantastic. Well, on the list today, um, as recommended, Dr. Hemphill, we'll, 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 we'll try our best to play uh, what we got. But uh, we have Haq Ali Ali Haq by Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan here on KSUA 91.5 FM Fairbanks. We're live on KSUA 91.5 FM Fairbanks. Uh, we have on the show today Dr. Hemphill uh, from the anthropology department, uh, but also some wonderful music uh, that was just shared Um the last song that we just played was Kafi by Abida Parveen. Uh, Dr. Hemphill, um, you were mentioning, also briefly mentioning earlier um, why you like this music, but uh, you know, maybe could you share with us why, uh, why it's uh, perfect for a Saturday afternoon uh, sort of song? Sure. You know, this, this kind of music has a long, long history in Pakistan. It comes from the Sufi tradition of Islam. And it's sung at festive occasions when people get together and it's considered very, very serious music. And little kids even learn how to play this. And all you need is like a, a little concertina and a tabla and you're good to go. You know, guys play this sitting down on stage. It's the perfect type of music, Dr. Hempel, I think uh, with uh you know, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about, you know, we were just discussing also briefly, you know, kind of, you know, where the music is from and, um, you know, we, the experiences you've had. But I think this kind of leads into a question, Dr. Hemphill, of um, where you've done your research. Um, you said, you mentioned you briefly were uh, in Pakistan, but uh, where else? Um, and, you know, how was that experience? Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. My, my first overseas experience was in Pakistan. I had the real great fortune to, as a graduate student, excavate the main cemetery at the ancient city of Harappa. There we exposed burials that were 5,000 years old and people were buried in wooden coffins with jewelry. It was, it was amazing. It was like being in a Hollywood movie, you know? And, and, that's, and that was great. But of course, when you're dealing with archeology span and archeologically derived human remains, sample sizes are small and often fragmentary. And I wanted to get more involved with the people themselves. You know, you can't really ask skeletons questions. You can, but they don't answer. So I got more interested in contemporary variation. And Pakistan, as you can imagine, is not the easiest place to work, although I've been working there for, a, well, my first field season was in 1987. So I've been working there for quite a while, off and on. But we're working with living people, I ended up working in India. India is more easier to deal with. And so I've done some work in Southeast India, in West Central India, and in Northeast India. But beyond South Asia, I've also had the 
great experience of excavating Bronze Age cemeteries in Central Asia. I uh, got to examine collections in Uzbekistan and I excavated a cemetery at Gnor Depe in Turkmenistan. When I went to university as an undergraduate in the late 1970s, I would take classes at Portland State and I might be the only, um, say, white American in the class. All the other students were Iranians. That's how big a presence Iranian students had at Portland State until the Islamic Revolution. And a number of those guys were my friends. I, you know, I saw them in class all the time and I really, really wanted to go to Iran and work on ancient Persia and the Achaemenid dynasty. But with the rise of the Ayatollah Khomeini and the Islamic revolution that went by the wayside. So I worked all around it. I just never made it there. Um, I've also I've done a fair amount of cultural resource management work. All of us do in the Western United States. That's how we pay for our crimes of going to school. And uh, in that role, um, I did archaeology in Oregon and Washington. And that ranged all the way from excavating or doing survey at a Clovis era site to working on a Hudson's Bay Company fort outside of Vancouver, Washington. And being one of the few people trained in skeletal analysis, one summer, I was working for the Forest Service. And my job was to go from site to site to site all over the state of Oregon and deal with the human burials. <laughs> that was a great job. So I've been, you know, I've worked a lot in the Western United States and of course Central Asia. So quite the uh, globe trotting then in a way. Uh, I will say too, uh, hearing about the um, Iranian students pre-revolution is interesting. Um, I remember my uh, maternal grandfather telling me uh, he went to U of O in the um, what would have been the early 70s, um, early mid 70s, and talking about the um, Ar Iranian students there as well. So I'm, I am now kind of curious as um, to what was uh, drawing them um, all the way to the west coast of the U.S. and uh, to Oregon in that region. Um, but uh, I'm also curious um, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit more about, you mentioned um, in relation to the uh, skeletal, uh, the analysis of skeletal remains here in the U.S. about um, what that looks like for uh, being a forensic consultant um, here in Alaska, right? On the previous show, we were discussing the TV show Bones, right? Which is famously about um, forensic anthropology. So if you wouldn't mind just talking a little bit more about what that looks like for you as well. You want me to address the forensics then? Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to preface it with when I was a graduate student, I was going to do my dissertation on skeletal anatomy of Oregon native Americans. There's a tremendous diversity. There are questions about the introduction of Athabascan speaking groups into a neighborhood that was populated by Penutian speakers. But I saw the writing on the wall with what we call NAGPRA, the North American Graves and Repatriation Act. And it was quite clear that there was gonna be little future in studying Native American skeletal remains because of 
the legal issues involved in NAGPRA. So that's how I ended up going out of the country towards South Asia and then focusing primarily on teeth. Now, with regard to forensics, that's, that's a whole nother bucket of fish, so to speak. With forensics, of course, you are faced with attempting as best as possible to identify a specific individual. And that's a very different question than trying to say something about a sample of a population of past individuals. Um, with regard to forensics, there are some things you can say and some things you can't say. And unfortunately, these shows like Bones, and I'm not just picking out Bones, but CSI or any of these others, is the tremendous overreach that they promulgate. That someone looks at a skull from a distance of 10 feet and says, oh, that was a 37-year-old Hispanic female. I it doesn't work that way. It's always a matter of probabilities. There's a matter of individual variation. There are some people that are men, but skeletally, they are very lightly built and could easily be mistaken for a female. So, and forensic science in the United States has gotten into considerable trouble about this overreach. And this was reflected in the Daubert decision. So there has to be a new higher level of reliability for expert witness testimony in the grounds of forensic science. On the other hand, forensic science can also be a very rewarding thing. You can give families closure. And I, I can't imagine being, say, <clears throat> a father or a mother of a missing child and not knowing whatever happened, good or bad, to that child. And if I can help someone be able to close that door, even if it's a sad door, at least it's a door that can be shut. And so I'm, I always work pro bono. I never, I never charge fees. I feel that that's just my part as a good citizen. And I think most of my colleagues are the same. And I'm, I'm proud to say that I have, I have a student right now that's working on a PhD at Oklahoma State University in forensic science. And she is a death investigator for the Travis County Coroner's Office, which is of course, Austin, Texas. You know, Dr. Helmpia, you bring up the, the example of being 10 feet away and being able to, uh, you know, recognize you know, um, details on a, on a skeletal remain is, is kind of, it, it is a bit outrageous. And I think, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, when we, when we chat a lot with undergrads who are incoming students, um, or have a lot of inquiries, you know, they, they base it off of that, which I think is an uh, interesting starting point, but at the same time, you know, um, expectations versus realities of what, um, you know, forensic anthropology could be or what the study of forensics is, um, you know, is, is something that we continue to come back to in, in conversation on the show. Um, you know, Dr. Hemphill, earlier you mentioned the places you've traveled, the research that you've done, um, you know, for a undergrad freshman, uh, undergrad Kevin, at least, um, a freshman Kevin would consider, you know, uh, Dr. Hemphill, you'd be 
the most other Hollywood icon would be Indiana Jones is something that we often talk about um, on this show. And, you know, that the, 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 the explore, exploration and the, the traveling and the experiences, um, which you do get as an anthropologist um, and then the experiences. But what becomes even more fruitful is learning uh, how to conduct the research in a proper way and how to go about uh, exploring and meeting people and understanding cultures and communities and d- going to dig sites and finding, you know, finds may, you know, though it may be very difficult uh, oftentimes, um, you know, and I think these these experiences, uh, you know, are, are something that uh, to all our listeners and to all the undergrads coming in, uh, you know, p- pay attention to that um, and of what the reality truly is. Uh, of what anthropology is. Um, I think that's, that's, a, that's a very good point to be made. Well, you know, it, you have to know the science in order to draw the conclusions. And it's not a Pop-Tart that comes leaping out of a toaster. You know, so you need to know the processes that result in the conclusions you're able to draw. And a lot of students don't realize that, and they think it's going to be this glorious thing without a lot of grunt work that goes into the preparation. With regard to doing overseas research, yeah, it's great. And I've learned a lot and I wouldn't trade it for anything. I've lived a really amazingly full life, but I would be a liar if I didn't tell you that there were times I was really scared like the one time we took the wrong road and ended up in Afghanistan, <laughs> you know, that was kind of scary because the U.S. wasn't in Afghanistan at that point, but there were lots of Mujahideen who were. And so sometimes these stories are a lot better uh, upon reflection. Uh, or I could tell you about the story that I, my visa expired and I had to hide out in a house in Islamabad and I got some help from the secretariat with this guy but he wanted to go and hang out with these cross-dressers, which I didn't even know existed in a place like Pakistan. And we're sitting there waiting in this parking lot. And this cross-dresser comes up to me and told me that she was Angelina Jolie. I was not quite sure how to respond to that. So I said, oh, I always thought you were taller. (laughs) So, you know. It looks great in Hollywood, but life is in Hollywood. It, in some ways, it's harder. In other ways, it's scarier. But in every way, it's richer. Yeah, the just the the diversity of experiences that you have in the real world, right? Versus what you know just comes prepackaged into like a two-hour film or you know the one-hour-week TV show, right? And of course, you know. <laughs> a lot of times right you know in in real life you have those sorts of experiences that you know if you were to write down you know people would say well that's not realistic fiction you can't <laughs> you know you can't put that on screen and people won't believe it happened and sometimes strange things do happen in life right and uh it's one of the... you can't even make this stuff up <laughs> and that's uh one of the you know joys of both living in the world and of uh, being an anthropologist, you know, is getting to uh, engage with that kind of stuff, right? Uh, Absolutely. But uh, one of the other joys of uh, being a global citizen, right, is getting to listen to music from uh, all across the world as well. 
and I, I believe, Kevin, that we have another uh, selection of tracks uh, to play for our dear listeners today. Indeed. Yeah. Um, per Dr. Hemphill's um, recommendations, we have another song here on KCUE 91.5 uh, FM Fairbanks by the Sabri Brothers um, uh, titled Bardo Joli Meri. This is Speaking of Anthropology on KSUA 91.5 FM Fairbanks. And, uh, you know, we're in the last couple minutes of our show here with Dr. Hemphill from the UAF Anthro Department. And, uh, you know, we've got our uh, final set of questions uh, to round out the show. I've realized, um, you know, in the past couple weeks that, well, we used to have just the one final question. I've kind of expanded it to a second one with my own edition, but one that I always find interesting, you know, because folks come to Fairbanks and to Alaska um, from all across the world for all kinds of reasons, right? And, uh, you know, so I always enjoy uh, talking to folks about why they why they ended up in uh, Fairbanks. And so, you know, Dr. Hempel, for um, my last question for you, I'll ask, you know, what uh, brought you to Alaska, right? What got you to Alaska from that <laughs> uh, globetrotting uh, adventure of yours? Well, I'm afraid my story is just a very pragmatic one. I was teaching at Cal State when the housing bubble hit in 2008. We went from seven faculty to two. They were going to take away our master's program. And I could see the writing on the wall. You know, it was just a matter of budget cutting. And so I, I was already a full professor. And I thought I was faced with a choice. And my choice was to go into the administration as probably vice president for faculty affairs, or I would have to become maybe an adjunct faculty to biology or to mathematics. And this position opened up in Alaska and I knew the previous two occupants of this chair. And so I talked to them and they really wanted me to come up here because they wanted to keep the dental going. And so I thought I would do this. And growing up in Western Oregon, you know, it's not as cold as Fairbanks, but it has a lot of the similar kinds of culture to it. And so for me, in some ways, it was kind of like going home again after spending a number of years in Tennessee and too long in Southern California. So I'm afraid it was a pragmatic choice. But those uh, those ties between Alaska and the Pacific Northwest are very real and something that I've only ever seen further evidence of in my own move down here to uh, southern Washington, for sure. So I'd like to add, Dr. Hemphill, I, I, I think I followed you up here as well. Likewise, um, originally from the Bay Area in California and then finding my way up here, you know, and we, we were just mentioning, you know, of what it's like what life is like living here. And, you know, it's. You know, we're on the West Coast, so there's a similarity, I think, um, you know, but, uh, you know, it's it's definitely, I think, you know, every person's experience and every, you know, person we've spoken to here on our show is, has their reason for coming here. And, um, you know, they, they it's always anthropological in some sense. But uh, on that note, Dr. Hempel, we have the final question of our show that we, we generally like to ask at the end, kind of to sum out, summarize the show and to finish out what um, our discussion has been on, on anthropology. Um, and the question is, you know, what is anthropology? Um, 
and maybe I'll give you a little context. Um, but you know, kind of the way we ask this question is, you know, we we have a lot of our own personal experiences that define what um, our academic endeavors have been, right, or whatever our, our daily experiences are. And in certain ways, uh, that definition has allowed us to better understand anthropology, right? And I think a lot of the the basic definitions that we think of it is cultural patterns, behaviors of humans, and and you know that in that sense. Um, but uh, you know, we always like to ask this question um, because it helps helps our listeners better understand uh, the different perspectives. So, Dr. Hemphill, take it away. What is anthropology? Well, of course, you're always going to get this textbook answer that anthropology is a study of humanity in the greatest possible context from a holistic perspective. And yeah, okay, blah, blah, blah. What does that mean? Well, let me tell you just a brief little story. I once had a roommate and we were both doing our PhD comprehensive exams at the same time. And he was getting his degree in developmental biology. He was studying the mid-blastula transition in the zebrafish. And we got to talk at one time because we both had our exams scheduled for the same time. And he goes, I don't understand you people in anthropology. He says, you read stuff from all these different journals. He says, there must be 50 different journals you read from. He says, and we only read three journals. And what's wrong with you guys? And I tell him, you have to understand an anthropology is like a small flightless bird. We have a very short attention span. And anthropology caters to that because you can do just about damn near anything. And as long as it has to do with humans, it's a fair play, you know? So that's what's always attracted me about it. And that is you can look at the human experience from so many different kinds of perspectives and look at it in a synthetic manner. I don't think that you learn everything about what it is to be human by studying genomes, wandering about in time and space. I don't think you really learn about people from what they say, because people lie like dogs, man, worse. <laughs> I think what you really learn about people and people's experiences by looking at them in lots of different ways. And that's what anthropology gives you. And that's why in my course in senior seminar, I force students as a capstone experience to have to go back and revisit and consider each of the four subdisciplines in tandem. That's what makes you an anthropologist. There's no better way to say it, Dr. Hemphill. I'm excited for this course and senior seminar. To my cohorts, let's get rocking and rolling. Keep presenting and keep writing your synopses. What we really learn about people. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Dr. Hempel, for uh, coming on the show today. Uh, this has been Speaking of Anthropology here on KSUA 91.5 FM Fairbanks. Uh, if you would like to listen to this show uh, as a podcast or any of the other shows, you can go to speakingofanthro.wixsite.com slash speakingofanthro. And, uh, you know, we also have a Twitter account that I'm trying to get off the ground for updates about the show and stuff. And that is just Speaking of Anthro on Twitter. Uh, as well as the Anthropology Society on Facebook. Kevin is planning some exciting things uh, here in the short-term future pertaining to the Anthropology Society at UIF. So if you're interested in that, follow the uh, Facebook page for updates. But yeah, 
uh, thank you for uh, listening. And uh, my name is Dylan. And my name is Kevin. And thank you again, Dr. Hemphill. Thank you.